Good morning. My name's Andy. Uh, I'll be your teacher today. Um, Albert graciously uh, allowed me to fill in for him uh, this morning, and uh, I've been really looking forward to hanging out with you today. I seriously, like, I, I drove really fast. Um, yeah, a police car went the opposite direction on the freeway, and I was like, okay. I, 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 that's when you look at your speedometer and realize actually how fast you're going. Uh, but uh, anyway, I, I've been really looking forward to this. So um, if you uh, have a Bible or you've got ones in front of you as well, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. When, you're, uh, when your pastor, Albert, invited me to come and teach, I was really excited to hear that you're studying the book of Luke. Um, Luke's take on the life of Jesus uh, just like all the other gospel writers, it's really interesting. Um, and he's got particular things that he wants you to see. And uh, Luke is, he seems like, from his writing, he seems like this very like black and white kind of person. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Like a, just a very black and white kind of person? Uh, for, for Luke, there's, 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 there's sinner and there's Pharisee. And there's outsider and there's insider and there's good and there's, there's evil. He doesn't really leave any middle ground when he tells his stories uh, about what happened because he wants you to see these extremes for what they are. He doesn't leave any gray area or middle ground because he wants you to see them for what they are, and then he wants you to pick which one you think is better. He wants you to pick a side. And uh, in our story today, Jesus is being asked to pick a side. And um, while our, our story doesn't come from the book of Luke, we're going to be in the book of John uh, this is the sort of Jesus story that's actually going to prepare you for some of the confrontations that are coming in the book of uh, Luke. Actually, straight away, it looks like you guys are getting into John the Baptist, so there's some serious confrontation there. Um, but then during our time together, I'm going to be asking you some questions about the story, and it would just be great if uh, whenever I asked a question, if you no need to raise your hand or anything, but you could just respond right back. So uh, if, I, if I ask stuff, uh, could we do like a call and response thing? Would that be all right by you? Would that be all right by you? All right, there we go. Thanks. All right, so let's let's pray. <clears throat> Father, if we if we don't hear from you today, if we don't meet with you, then all this is just pointless. Open our eyes today so that we could see wonderful things in, in this Jesus story. We can't see or understand or obey unless you would give your Holy Spirit. To help us. So let us see you now. Let us feel your heartbeat. In Jesus' name, amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, 1 through 11. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around and he sat down to teach them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded that we should stone such women. But what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger.
when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and began to write in the ground. At this, those who understood began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Chapter 1. Something unexpected. If you're the woman in this story, this is meant for your head. It's brutal, it's it's archaic, it's barbaric. I don't like it, but that's our story today. And the religious guys in this story, they want this woman to die. The law says, stone her to death. She's committed adultery. Now, according to the law that God gave to Moses, this is a really serious crime. It it affects not just the two people involved, it it affects a whole community. It's painful. It tears lives apart. It's painful. And it's a crime that's punished by being stoned to death. But they ask Jesus, what do you say? Now, why do they ask him? Like, do they want his expert opinion? What What does the story say? Why do they ask him? Yeah, they're trying to trap him. And so we see how quickly religion can can become something demonic and dehumanizing. The The woman in the story, she's not even human to them. She's... She's just bait. She's just cheese for the mousetrap. So Jesus really, Jesus really has his work cut out for him if he's going to get her out of this mess. Suppose that Jesus says, no, don't kill her. Then uh, how would you think that the, the religious guys, how would they use that against him? What would they say? What would, what would they say if, if he's saying, no, don't, don't kill her? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're a prophet? You're a teacher of God's law. Really? Really? And then he's discredited. Suppose there's all these people who were already gathered around, even before the religious guys showed up. And they were, they were ready to hear a teaching. They didn't expect to get this kind of a teaching. But uh, suppose Jesus says, yeah, yeah, go ahead, kill her. What would those people say? What would you say if you were there? If you were ready to hear Jesus and he says, yeah, kill her. Like, what kind of, what kind of teacher is this? I thought, I thought we were going to get something new and different. I've heard this before. This is nothing new. 
Sorry, Jesus, I'm going to keep looking somewhere else. So no matter what he says, he's trapped. But Jesus doesn't say anything. Not at first. First he does something. What does he do? What does he do? He writes in the dirt. Yeah, okay. Has anyone in here ever taken a class in like martial arts or self-defense or anything like that? Yeah, I've got a couple people in here. Okay, so one of the things... Yeah. One of the, one of the things... Um, one of the things you learn in self-defense is that if you want to stop an attack, you need to do something unexpected. Because your attacker, they've got a couple scenarios worked out in your mind, uh, worked out in their mind as to how this is going to play out, and they're prepared for those things. They're prepared for you maybe to run, and in that case, they would run after you. They're prepared for you to maybe hide or tuck into a ball. In that case, you're, you're easy prey. They're prepared for you maybe to fight back. What they're not ready for is for you to challenge them to a holding your breath contest. They're not, they're not prepared for you to do a handstand or beatbox or teach them how to dougie or to ask them, invite them to have a slumber party in your basement. These things would be, these things would be a little unexpected. And uh, I'd say riding in the dirt, that's a, little, that's a little odd, a little unexpected. Jesus, we need an answer from you. This woman... What is he doing? But now he has their attention. And now, he says, the first one to throw a stone at her must be the one who has never, ever, 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 ever sinned. And then he writes in the dirt again. Like, what's up with the dirt, Jesus? Like he didn't get enough sandbox time as a kid or something. You know, just, I don't know. But um, I've heard people ask, I wonder what he wrote in the dirt. Like, I wonder, I wonder what he said. Like, if, if we had, like, a, a movie of the Bible, like, like one that, like, that really happened, and there was, like, you know, the video camera pans over Jesus' shoulder, and we can see, like, what was he writing? What did it say? But I've been a student of this story long enough to know if we needed to know what Jesus wrote then the author would have told us. But he doesn't tell us. All he tells us is that Jesus wrote in the ground. And how many times did he write? Two times. And what did he use to write? His finger. Not a stick. Not a stick. Not a sharpie. A finger. Two times. So, as you grow as a follower of Jesus, and as you get more and more familiar with this story, every now and then you're going to come across details in the story that seem a little weird, a little random, a little out of place. Things that make you ask, why, why did they need to tell me that? And when that happens, you need to be on full alert. Antenna up, full reception, five out of five cell phone bars should be active. Unless you have an iPhone. It's one out of five. If that, so, but anyway, so the but the authors in the in the Bible they sometimes include details in the story to say, hey, wink wink, nudge nudge, check this out, and when that happens, there's something you can use called the principle of first mention. Now, everybody, if you don't have glasses like me, I just want you to push up your imaginary Bible nerd glasses. 
You can either do the side push or even just single finger. All right, everybody do it with me. Push up your imaginary Bible nerd glasses and repeat after me the principle of first mention. That was good. All right, because they're such nerds. All right. All that means is this. In this big story of God, the guys who write the New Testament, they don't have the New Testament. That's not their Bible. The Old Testament is their Bible. And the people reading it, that's their Bible. So in this big, huge story of God, this phrase, this word, this image, it seems like an echo. It seems like I've heard this before. Where is the first time I may have seen something like this before? And if there is a first mention, if this has happened before, is there any connection to this time? And if there is, if you find that first mention, buckle your Bible seatbelts, seriously, because it's, it's about to get really good. The story's about to get 3D. So, do it with me now. Writing. Fingered. Two times. Remember that. Chapter 2. Will you marry me? Years and years before this this Jesus story, uh, in the book of Exodus, chapter 31, uh, God has rescued the nation of Israel from bondage to slavery in Egypt. And God's used this man named Moses to bring them out, and he's bringing them into a new land. What's that? Does anybody remember what that new land is called? Promised land, Canaan, yeah, all right. So God tells Israel, you are very special to me. I want to be together like this forever. Will you marry me? And Israel says, yes, we will. And so God tells the nation, the only way this is going to work is if it's just me and you. There can be no other gods, no other lovers. Just me and you. If there's anybody else involved in this, it just breaks down. It's not going to work. And so Moses goes up on a mountain to get the marriage contract from God. And this marriage contract is some kind, sometimes called by uh, a name involving the number 10. Anybody want to guess what that other name is? Ten Commandments. Exactly. Okay, so check this out. Exodus 31, 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law. The tablets of stone, what's it say? Inscribed by the finger of God. Writing, finger. We almost have a match if we find the two times. Moses goes down the mountain. Good news, everybody. God wants to marry us. He wants to be with us forever. And he, hey, what is going on? Does anybody remember what Moses finds Israel doing when he comes down the mountain? Worshipping a golden calf, yes. Now there's an I word for what that golden calf is. What's that I word? It's an idol, yeah. So an, an idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. Anything or anyone. The very first words of the Ten Commandments, the marriage agreement says this, Exodus 20, 2 through 4. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. 
So they've only been married for a little bit, and they've already broken the first part of the agreement. This this whole idea of of being married to God, it comes up in in all kinds of interesting ways in the rest of the story of uh, God's people. Probably the most interesting way uh, is in, in the life of a prophet, and he's told by God to go and marry a promiscuous woman. Does anybody remember the name of that prophet? Hosea, exactly. And so Hosea's marriage is going to be a living picture of God's marriage with Israel. And God says, Hosea 1-2, Marry her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. How good is that picture? <laughs> um, and how has Israel been adulterous and unfaithful? By, by worshiping false gods. Hosea 4.12 says this, My people consult a wooden idol. They're answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. So, if the Ten Commandments were a marriage contract, and we're going to idols then essentially, what are we doing to God? Yeah, yeah, committed adultery, breaking his heart, cheating on him. So Moses sees Israel breaking God's heart, and he's furious. So what does he do with the marriage contract? He breaks it. He throws it, shatters into pieces. This really breaks God's heart when we do this to him. But still, God wants to be married to Israel. Still. Why would he want, why? Because God isn't like us. Thank God, God isn't like us. He will be faithful even when we're not. And you see this in Hosea's life. You see this in the, in the whole biblical story. I've seen it in my life. He will be faithful even when we are not. 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. He He cannot disown himself. In other words, he can only be who he is. And who he is, is faithful. Always faithful. And so God goes up, so Moses goes up to God, and God makes new tablets. Exodus 34, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. And what does it say? I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Writing, finger, and there it is, two times. That's the last piece of the puzzle we were looking for. How many times does God write the marriage contract? Two times. And what did God use to write? His finger. Why did Moses break the first edition? Israel was worshiping an idol. And to God, idolatry is like what? Adultery. How many times did Jesus write in the ground? And what did he use to write? And the woman in the story was caught in the act of just, <laughs> oh. 
That's why John, he's like, come on, check this out. It's so sweet. Oh, man. The religious guys, they've been so focused on this one woman's sin that they've forgotten their story. Where their whole nation had cheated on God. They'd all broken his heart. And yet God was faithful. God was merciful. And Jesus reveals what's really going on in their hearts. Because they know there are so many times when something or someone else has taken the place of God in their life. They know they've cheated on Him. But they try to cover up what they're ashamed of, what they feel condemnation about, by exposing it in somebody else's life. And Jesus calls them out on it. Because if the religious guys were really concerned about justice, then where's the man? Because it takes two to commit adultery. This wasn't about their righteous indignation at the sin of adultery. This was about that. Because the ones who fear condemnation in their own hearts are the ones who are quickest to point it out in others. Fear in our own hearts leads to condemnation of others. And condemnation leads to death. And this is as far as religion can take you. So if you were thinking about becoming religious, take a good look. Because this is where you end up someday. But I think we can do a little bit better than religion, don't you? Chapter 3. Once and for all. There's one last, there's one last area of our story that I'd like to explore with you. And uh, that's the law of Moses. That seems to be the bump in the road right now. Because by all accounts, the woman in our story, she's guilty. There's no way around that. And according to the law of Moses, the woman in our story, she dies. And the law of Moses came from God. Interesting, though. In the Exodus story, who's the one doing the writing? And in the Gospel of John, who's the one doing the writing? But Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you. So is God contradicting himself? Like, what's happening here? That's what I'd like to explore in this last bit of our time together. Has anyone in here ever read the book of Leviticus? A couple of you. Hardcore. Wow. They're special people. Um, Okay, so has anyone in here ever read the the book of uh, Leviticus with all of its uh, rituals and and sacrifices and just thought, this is so violent. Jeez. It's just like, cut this and drain this and burn this and kill this. Like, it reads like a low-budget slasher film. It's like, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a very complicated and bloody sacrificial system. It's like, what's going on with all the sacrifices? Um, on first pass, it seems pretty complicated, but I've, I've found, I found a way to kind of navigate it and figure out what's going on, and that's by asking the question, who gets to eat? Sometimes uh, your whole family was involved in the sacrifice, and you would bring your offering before the priest, and, but then the priest would give it back to you. 
And as a family, in the Lord's presence, you would eat the sacrifice. And it was this beautiful, symbolic celebration. It was like Thanksgiving, where you're in God's presence and just celebrating His goodness to you. It was like this big party. You ate. Other times, it was you and just you and the priest. And you would bring your offering to the priest, and the priest would present it before God. And this animal represents your life and your death and your sin. In this, in this symbolic ritual, this animal sacrifice was a way to remove your sin, remove your death, and allow something else to absorb it. And then, what's really interesting is that the priest would eat it. So in this really powerful visual demonstration, someone else was eating your sin. And you would see it. There it goes, and it's gone. Huh. There goes my sin. But then, once a year came the Day of Atonement. And the entire nation would gather... And the high priest would, in this symbolic ritual, place the sins of the entire nation upon a lamb. And that lamb would be killed and placed upon the altar. But the priest doesn't eat it. It just burns and goes up. So, if we don't eat it, and if the priest doesn't eat it, and ultimately, who eats our sin? God does. God eats our sin. Because ultimately, He's the only one capable of dealing with it. I've tried. I'm not very good at dealing with it. So Jesus, Jesus knows why he's, why he's come. With the law of Moses and all that it was meant to do, it was still a temporary arrangement. It was a broken system. Literally broken from the very beginning. And so, with the coming of Jesus, it's, it's obsolete. It's outdated. It's no longer necessary. Jesus would absorb this whole sacrificial system into himself, becoming the slain lamb on the cross, absorbing our sin, our death into himself, And then he would resurrect from the dead and be raised to heaven to be our high priest. So Jesus is sacrifice, priest, and God. So the the author of the book of Hebrews puts this all together to tell us now the bloodshed could stop. It's no longer needed because he sacrificed for sins once for all when he offered himself. He obtained our eternal redemption once for all by his own blood. Once for all, he has done away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's why Jesus can stand before this woman and he doesn't have to condemn her to death. He knows who he is. He knows that the day is coming. He's the only one qualified to throw a rock. He's the only one who has never, ever, 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 ever sinned. 
which makes him the perfect lamb. So standing alongside her, he knows the day is coming when once and for all on the cross, he's going to absorb sin and death into himself. And then three days later, he's going to emerge on the other side of death alive. And so he can say to her, he can say to me, he can say to you, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Let that sink in. I don't condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus, Jesus could release this woman to go and live. But what about us? What if we've been deeply wronged by somebody else? If I walk up to you and punch you in the face, in that moment you have two choices. You can hit back, or you can absorb it. Because forgiveness always requires somebody absorbing something. You can say with your mouth, I forgive you. But in doing so, you have absorbed the pain, you have absorbed the loss, you have absorbed the betrayal, the lies, the deceit, you've absorbed the affair, you've absorbed the evil that was done. And when you do that, there's a death that you feel, a death that takes place in here. You will feel it and it will hurt. And that's why this system is easier. Because if I strike back, I don't have to feel any more pain. I will make you hurt. Because somebody has to absorb the consequences, the results of the choices that I've made when I've taken a step towards death instead of life. Somebody has to absorb it. Forgiveness takes courage. Really does. And it takes a heart that's willing to absorb more pain to know that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But the underlying message in forgiveness says, this stops with me. I absorb it. No more. Because forgiveness always requires someone absorbing something. So now, we get to eat. Every time we take communion, this ancient ritual has the opportunity to become deeper, richer, more beautiful. Every time we take it, as we grow an understanding of what it's all about. But, well, what, we'll, what we'll do is there'll be, they'll, the, the musicians will come up and, and we'll sing. And uh, if you haven't done this before, we, just got, we have a couple spots around the room with the communion elements. Just can hang for a sec, yeah. Uh, but the, but the, the elements will be around the room and you can take the bread and, and take the cup uh, at any point, just as long as you can do that out of respect for Christ. If you can't, just, just let it be. Um, but before you participate in this, ask yourself if you should be taking it all by yourself. Maybe you need to be taking it with somebody. There's something between you in here. And... 
trying to figure out how would you would even move forward in your relationship and, 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 and move along in spite of what's happened between you. Uh, you can't even begin to imagine what that would look like. But before God, you could take this together and just say, God, it's, it's time to move forward with this. It's time to move towards healing and forgiveness. And I, don't, I, I can't even begin to know what that looks like, but we're going to eat together with you here in hope that you can do something with this. Maybe, maybe for a little bit you need to step out of the room and make a phone call. Maybe somebody's come to mind. And you need to call them and see if, as soon as possible, they can meet up with you. And you could start talking about how to make this right before God. Maybe, maybe you've just been carrying around all this junk and you actually need somebody to eat with you who can just hear your confession. Just say, this is, this, this is what I've been carrying around. And they can say to you, let's eat. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we eat, we drink to remember. And what do we need to remember? That I don't need to fear condemnation one more day. Because Jesus Christ has eaten my sin once and for all. And that changes everything. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Father, we, we want to be able to pray what Jesus taught us to pray, that you would forgive us as we are also forgiving others, and also as we forgive ourselves. God, I pray that this, that this truth uh, of what it means, sacrifice and bloodshed and forgiveness, God, I, I pray that it would, it would become real, more real than it ever has before. I pray that during this time, um, you'd minister to us, speak words of truth, tell us who we really are versus the, the tapes that play in our heads and, and tell us something different than how you see us, Lord. Help us to see ourselves the way you see us. Help us to see the other, others, the ones who've wronged us, the way that you see them. God, bring peace. We can't do it without you. Bring wholeness. We can't have that apart from you. In Jesus' name, amen.